0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the home of Florida writer Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings in Cross
1: Creek. She could only write here. This was really her place of inspiration.
0: We'll discuss Hugh Willoughby's trek across the Everglades in 1898. Willoughby decided that he
2: would start from the western edge that was less explored the 10,000 Islands region and head east. This way he thought if he just continued to head east he would at one point run into Henry Flagler's railroad.
0: And we'll talk about Frank Evans, a pioneer of Sanford and Lake Mary. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Why did
3: I choose you What did I see in you I saw the heart you hide so well I saw a quiet
2: man
4: who
3: had a gem
0: That's Barbara Streisand singing a song from the Broadway musical production of the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings book, The Yearling. The show had only three performances in 1965, but every other version of the story was highly successful. The Yearling was the best-selling book of 1938 and won the Pulitzer Prize the following year. An Oscar-nominated film version was made in 1946, and the book was adapted for television in 1994. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings wrote The Yearling and almost all of her important work from the front porch of her Florida home. A visit to the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park in the rural community of Cross Creek is like a trip back in time to the 1930s. The home there is furnished just as Rawlings had it when she was writing her Pulitzer Prize winning novel The Yearling, her autobiography Cross Creek, and other works depicting the lives of Florida crackers. Rawlings typewriter and notes sit on a table on the front porch along with her ashtray and a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes as if the writer has just gotten up to get a glass of iced tea from the kitchen. Each room of the house contains furniture and personal items that belong to Rawlings or are very similar to what the beloved Florida writer owned. Carrie Todd is park ranger at Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park.
1: She always described it as a rambling farmhouse um, Maybe a little shabby chic is the way to talk about it. It's white with green lattice on the bottom, and it's got, it's 3,000 square feet, four bedrooms, two bathrooms, so it's large, but it doesn't seem large. It seems just sort of rambling when you're trying to go through it.
0: Although famous for her stories about rural life in Florida, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings was not a native. She was born in Washington, D.C., and attended college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, graduating in 1918. She lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and Rochester, New York, before moving to Florida with her husband, Charles Rawlings, in 1928. The couple planned to support themselves with the orange trees on their property, allowing them to write in a beautiful, serene, rural setting.
1: They were both writers. They both were going to write novels, and they thought it was going to be an easy time to make money with that citrus crop. You know, just, oh, it'll grow itself, they won't have to do much, and it was a booming industry then, so they thought they were going to strike it big and then have all this time to write, which, of course, wasn't the case, but Marjorie seemed to do pretty well.
0: Growing citrus was a lot more work than the couple had anticipated. Charles Rawlings grew tired of life in the country, and the two were divorced. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings felt a connection to her Florida land and stayed there to write.
1: Marjorie walked through the rusty old gate and immediately fell in love. The book Cross Creek, she often describes as like a love story to a place. But Charles Rawlings, I think, had a completely different idea About what this was gonna be. He thought he was gonna be a gentleman farmer, uh, where Marjorie saw charm in the sort of rusticness. He saw the lack of paint and the lack of screens and the lack of electricity and the lack of running water. And he hadn't been as successful as a writer, even for the magazines that he was trying to publish. So when Marjorie hit it big, you know, he maybe was a little jealous and, you know, things weren't working out as well for him.
0: Rawlings first attempted to write gothic romance novels but could not interest publishers in her work. Literary editor Maxwell Perkins was fascinated with Rawlings' letters and stories about her life in rural Florida and encouraged her to write a novel about that.
1: Maxwell Perkins, the editor of *Geniuses*, some people call him, saw one little story called Cracker Chitlins in *Scribner's* Magazine and knew that Marjorie was on to something, that she had this really great talent, and he got her to, you know, take the notes and the little bits she had been writing down ever since she first stepped into Florida and turn it into a book, Um, The Yearling particularly, but she has eight novels and 26 short stories about Florida. So she had a lot of material to work with, and he definitely helped shape those stories into the greatness that they are.
0: Rawlings' most popular book, The Yearling, won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1939 and was made into a very successful film starring Gregory Peck and Jane Wyman in 1946. Her 1942 autobiography, Cross Creek, was adapted for a 1983 film starring Mary Steenburgen. Rawlings wrote many other stories about life in Florida. Florence Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida Special Collections.
3: She began with the encouragement of her editor, Maxwell Perkins, of Charles Scribner's sons, an extensive career basing her literary imagination and focusing her, her efforts on stories about the Cracker people. She began by publishing a collection of uh, vignettes called Cracker Chidlings and um continued with very successfully along that same vein with a um her first novel which was called South Moon Under which is based literally on visits and time that she spent living with people in the Ocala National Forest in the big scrub as she called it um and characterized their lives and their struggles in these very compelling stories, which were very successful.
0: Not everyone was pleased with Rawlings' work. Zelma Kaysen, a Cross Creek resident who was described by Rawlings in unflattering terms, sued the writer for invasion of privacy, eventually winning one dollar in damages.
3: Marjorie Rawlings used the real names of uh, her friends and neighbors in her semi-autobiographical book Cross Creek, which was published in 1942. In this particular case, Zelma Kaysen, who Marjorie considered a very close friend of hers, she sued Marjorie for originally for a libel and then kind of morphed into an invasion of privacy charge that was leveled against Marjorie for the characterization of her Zelma in Cross Creek as an ageless spinster who resembles a canary. She was a diminutive person. She was lively, and Marjorie thought that that was a good characterization of her. Um, In addition to the remarks about her physical appearance and her marital status, there was also reference to her propensity to use profanity, and all of which of these allegations Zelma took grave umbrage, too. (laughs) So her charges were leveled um, quickly, soon after the book was published. And they engaged in a legal battle, which took more than five years to resolve, and which ended in a Florida Supreme Court ruling, finding in favor of the plaintiff, in favor of Kaysen, but awarding damages of $1.00. So Rawlings was devastated by this outcome, not because of the financial burden, but because of the lack of vote of confidence that was implied by the negative ruling. And of course, Kaysen was disappointed in that she received no compensation for her trouble.
0: After the trial, Rawlings was so upset by the outcome that she never wrote about Florida again.
3: At the outcome of the trial, she was very discouraged and vowed never to write about Florida again, and in fact, she never did publish anything set until she died in 1953. There was never anything else published about Florida. She was writing her novel, The Sojourner, which was set in the Midwest uh, at the time, and um, when she died, she had just finished writing The Sojourner. So, so indeed, she made good on her promise not to write about Florida again.
0: Maxwell Perkins worked with Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, among others, but Marjorie Kinan Rawlings' best literary friend was Zora Neale Hurston. Carrie Todd.
1: Yes, she was visited by Zora Neale Hurston, and they both bonded over uh, what they called picture talk, or the rich, thick descriptions of life here in florida of course zora is a famous florida writer and marjorie is a famous florida writer and so they had a lot to really talk about Um, but marjorie knew a lot of famous writers through uh, maxwell perkins particularly but through the big writing scene the 20s and 30s
0: rawlings maid idella parker wrote a book about her experience working for rawlings called idella marjorie rawlings perfect maid
1: idella was the woman who worked for her probably the longest uh, as a maid, and was a fascinating woman in her own right. She didn't start writing books until she was in her 70s, and she went on a huge lecture circuit after she wrote those. She was active in the Rawlings Society, you know, and did a lot of really fabulous things on her own. And they definitely had a almost an equal relationship, which was interesting for the time, being a black woman and a white woman. So it was it's neat that she also got some, I guess, literary credit for the time she spent with Marjorie.
0: A visit to the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings House provides a unique view of both life in Old Florida and the life of one of the state's most loved writers.
1: So people come for a lot of different reasons. We get a lot of people who love Marjorie Rawlings, of course. They're making a pilgrimage of some kind. We have a lot of people that come because this is old Florida. You know, it's, we've really tried to preserve Florida from the 1920s and 30s. You know, we dress in period costume. We have chickens and ducks running around. And the best compliment I can get is, oh, you remind me so much of my grandmother. So we get those people, and then we get people who are just driving down the highway looking for something really cool to see, and they see our sign, and they stop by. And school children, because Marjorie is of course a great Floridian, they study her in fourth grade, they study her in eighth grade, and so we try to get as many school kids out here as we can. In
0: 1941, Rawlings married Norton Baskin, living in both the St. Augustine area and Cross Creek.
1: He operated the Castle Warden Hotel. It's now the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, so you can go still see it. And uh, she did live in St. Augustine with him most of the time and came back to Cross Creek to write. She could only write here. This was really her place of inspiration.
0: The Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings House is located in Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park on County Road 325 in Hawthorne, Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming broadcasts of the television series Florida Frontiers, and read our weekly blog. While you're there, take a moment to become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, The Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
4: She's between the highs and lows In subtropic windy blows The Everglades lives as the grassy warmer flows in the shallow sheets between, where the damage marks is seen, Big Lake Okeechobee, she's a slow move in the
0: stream. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas opens her 1947 book Everglades River of Grass saying, there are no other Everglades in the world. Ben, you have in your archive an even earlier account of the Everglades. Yeah, that's
2: right. The Everglades has represented this mysterious wilderness for uh, centuries of, of Floridians. People have traveled to Florida, but this southern section of the state has remained Uh, essentially unmapped. In fact, if you look at sectional maps from the 1870s and 1880s, there's a huge portion of the peninsula that simply says needs to be surveyed. So it was completely really still unexplored uh, into the late 19th century. And what we're talking about today is a expedition that was undertaken in 1898 by a gentleman by the name of Hugh de la Salle Willoughby. Uh, And Willoughby is an interesting character. He's not a native Floridian, but he spent some 20 years in Florida prior to this expedition, usually during the wintertime, as many people did. He was the son of a wealthy banker. According to some early biographers, he never really held a real job. Uh, He was uh, kind of born into wealth and became a sportsman, uh, which was typical of late Victorian age young men. They they tended to go out and uh, hunt and fish and explore. But he was uh, fascinated much more than that. He was fascinated in the sciences. Graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1877. He was a collegiate athlete and was involved in, in a lot of early inventions as well, including inventing a lot of material that would go in, later go into uh, aircraft manufacturing. Uh, but he was fascinated with the Everglades and decided that he would succeed where others had failed, particularly some contemporary expeditions, one in 1883 by Major A.P. Williams and a later expedition in 1892 by J.E. Ingram. And that second expedition, was an attempt to create some kind of passage or trail between the southwestern coast of Florida and the southeastern coast of Florida, specifically Miami. Uh, the Ingram expedition included dozens of men, tons of material, and was fraught from the very beginning with hardship. And they barely, many of the members of the expedition barely survived uh, when they crossed from Fort Myers into Miami. So Willoughby decided to learn from those mistakes and attempt another crossing in 1898.
0: And we have here from your archive a
2: first edition of Willoughby's book. Yeah, that's right. This was published in late 1898. It's entitled Across the Everglades, Uh, again, written entirely by Hugh Willoughby. Uh, What's great about this book, not only do we uh, have this wonderful narrative, but Willoughby also brought with him a black and white camera, and he took hundreds of photos, and included in this book are some 50 plates, most of which include him holding a gun. They were obviously posed photographs, but it gives us an idea of the landscape that uh, that he was dealing with. Now, a lot of earlier expeditions would start from the eastern side, the more uh, developed side of Florida, the eastern coast, and then head west. Well, Willoughby decided that he would start from the western edge that was less explored, the 10,000 islands region, and head east. This way, he thought if he just continued to head east, he would at one point run into Henry Flagler's railroad uh, and might survive the expedition. So they put in, in early January, uh, along the Harney River, uh, he and another navigator, he actually hired uh, a gentleman he had been hunting with for many years in Florida, and they started out with two canvas canoes uh, loaded down with supplies. Now, I mentioned that Willoughby was an inventor. He actually brought with him this very ingenious device called a cyclometer. And the cyclometer would actually, it was attached to the side of the canoe and it, had, it was a bicycle wheel it had these small paddles that would spin and then record the distance. So as they canoed through the Everglades, he could take daily measurements, record their distance. He also brought with him a sextant, which is an instrument used to determine one's location based on celestial objects. So every night he would take these readings. Now again, this was more of a scientific expedition than it was kind of a, a fun exploit. He captured a number of specimens that he then sent back to the University of Pennsylvania, and a lot of these scientific measurements, the location measurements, uh, he would later hand over to the federal government for use in map making you know the goal for him was to encourage development or at least an understanding of the Everglades. Which brings me to an interesting point. Now, uh, in the late 19th century, the push, at least, towards the Everglades was for development, for modernity. The idea was that man could drain the swamps and could develop this vast wasteland that we knew very little of, that was filled with mosquitoes, diseases, and Seminole Indians. Well, Willoughby wanted to learn as much as he could, at least, about uh, this vast expanse. Now, he does, uh, seems to be sort of in keeping with that trend. He says, quote here, In the nature of things, the wilderness must be gradually approached upon. What would the settler and the farmer do without this railroad that now gives him rapid communication with the north for his winter products? So he had an idea that. Development was inevitable, at least in Florida. But in that same vein, later in the book, he gives us a a kind of a different impression that he understood more, that the Everglades was more than just a swamp. He says here, quote, The popular impression has always been that the Everglades is a huge swamp, full of malaria and disease germs. There were certainly nothing in our surroundings that would remind one of a swamp. Around the shores of the little islands, the mud may be a trifle soft, but the pure water is running over it, and no stagnant pools can be found. In the daytime, the cool breeze has an undisturbed sweep and the water is protected from overheating by the shade the grass affords, unquote. And throughout the book... Willoughby alludes to the Everglades as a massive moving body of water, uh, which Ben, you gave us a quote earlier from Marjory Stoneman Douglas, who is, is credited of course with helping to preserve the Everglades and also notice this trend. But it seems that even at this point in 1898, there was a, an understanding that this region was much more complicated and that the ecosystem uh, very much relied on this natural hydrology, the flowing of the Everglades south. It was a massive essentially river that moves south along the southern peninsula. And it, it seems that, that he at least had some early theories about that.
0: What else do we know about Willoughby besides his trip through the Everglades?
2: Well, the book itself is fascinating, and if Willoughby would have died a day after this book was published, I think uh, he would have had a lengthy obituary. But he went on, as I mentioned, he was involved in early airplane design. He was actually uh, working with the Wright brothers and designed the rudder that was later used on the Wright brothers' first airplane. He ended up with dozens of patents, actually, that were used in early aviation. He was one of the first Americans to hold a pilot's license. Uh, he was flying planes as late as his seventies, and he was involved in innovation and, and inventing and pushing the limits. He was also involved in early auto racing in Florida. Uh, The Daytona-Ormond area, of course, is famous now as the birthplace of speed. Well, Hugh Willoughby was right on the forefront. He entered a number of cars in the 1904 and 1905 races. Never won, uh, but was there nonetheless. He was involved in bicycle innovations as well. So he was just an interesting guy. He lived in Florida. He had a house, at least, in St. Augustine for most of his life. He died in 1939, but lived in Rhode Island and New York as well, but still came down to Florida and wintered here as well.
0: Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Bendy Biassi is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. She's
4: between the highs and lows in subtropic windy blows. Everglades lives as the grassy river flows. The Everglades lives as the grassy river flows.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this look at Frank Evans, a pioneer of Sanford and Lake Mary. He actually performed in a circus at first. Uh,
4: after that goes on for a while, his father, who is a, an aging doctor in this area at the time and was actually mayor of Sanford four times, uh, living in Lake Mary again—they went from Lake Mary to Sanford, back to Lake uh, Mary—notifies Frank that he really doesn't want his son to be a circus performer. He wants him to be something else, and we're pretty sure that was to be a doctor because that had run in their family. Frank doesn't become a doctor. He does go back to school, but he becomes a chemist and a mathematician, and he excels at it. That was Gerald Engel, the history curator at the Lake Mary Historical Museum. He spoke to me about Frank Evans, who came from one of
2: the pioneering families of Sanford and later Lake Mary. Frank Evans was important for
4: the founding of the museum. When this building was actually City Hall briefly for a while in the 1980s, there was a small museum in one of the back hallways. Uh, Most people did not know it was even here. And uh, what happens is uh, this, of course... The community way outgrew this one-room building as City Hall. So City Hall builds on the property next door across Lakeview Avenue. And uh, they have a nice park and a big new building over there. And and this building then becomes a museum. And uh, I was not involved in it at the time, but it would have been around probably 1990, 91 in that period of time. And uh, then it becomes officially a museum, and the people that were here at the time set about trying to collect items from the local community. The things they were trying to get, we're talking about frontier Florida. Uh, Florida, again, in the interior is a raging frontier until the 1920s, really. And uh, the Depression stops most of the growth Uh, until after World War II, you know, so it it stays pretty sleepy and and small. So there's not a lot. But uh, what there is of the cracker culture, we like to call it, was in this area. Professionally, Frank Evans devoted much of his time to the Lake Mary region where his political endeavors were great. This This is where he starts to make a name for himself. Ends up being Seminole County Commissioner twice in his life. He ends up owning a bank in downtown Sanford and also the Ritz movie theater among other things Uh, but you have to understand that in the land booms of the 1920s this is what's going on these guys make their money with land and uh, we really don't know how much wealth they actually had Uh, for the period it would have been tremendous I'm sure and uh, they buy sell buy sell Uh, and he ends up building a number of buildings in this part of Lake Mary uh, this building, the museum itself, is one of those which, uh, in the back of his mind, he was constructing to be a place for him and his fellow Spanish American war veterans to meet. But in order to get it through the entire community, of course, it becomes uh, the chamber of commerce for the community, and is on the historical building registry. Uh, but this is this is what it was they, they had uh, during the 1920s and 30s. They did performances in here. We have a stage. They had a band. Of course, that bands were popular at that time. And uh, all the way through the Great Depression, if anything happened in Lake Mary other than funerals, apparently it would happen in this building. At one time, the museum building was called the Frank Evans Center, and Gerald Engel tells us why Frank Evans helped to bring veterans and the community to the building. You have to remember there was a good number of Spanish-American war veterans, believe it or not, here at that time between Sanford and Lake Mary and Longwood and such. Uh, A lot of them were farmers, cattle raisers, of course, because that was a big industry at the time. And uh, they would come here periodically, uh, not certain of how often, whether it was once a month or a couple times a year, but it was a community-wide event. Uh, They would build campfires behind the building which in those days uh, was a pine tree grove, literally. And they would uh, cook chicken and rice over those campfires, uh, which the soldiers called chicken purlo and we believed that that was a uh, a mess up on the spanish arroz con pollo which is chicken and rice but in their minds they heard it uh, as chicken perlo and that's what they called it and the whole community would come and they would get to partake in uh, these dinners and so it was a big deal these guys would march in parades you know on veterans days and stuff like that and the kids would be released from school early so they could go watch these guys march up and down the street here the meetings of the the spanish american war veterans in this building continued through the 1950s and in into the early 1960s, from what I understand. They eventually, you know, quit coming. You know, they got old and, and a lot of them died off. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at
2: the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. Don't miss the television series, Florida Frontiers. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.